Okay, welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness here at Co-op Radio. We are visiting with Kirsten Meyer in a pre-recorded visit back in 2008. We return to our interview. Federal prosecutors have a wide range of discretion as a general matter in deciding how to proceed, whether with the case against the company and the nine factors that we were talking about before in that memorandum guides the exercise of a prosecutor's discretion when he or she is deciding whether to prosecute a company. That's the orientation of the memo. But prosecutors always have to make difficult decisions about who among individuals, if anyone, should be prosecuted. What's been interesting in the area of these off-label pharmaceutical prosecutions is that historically, companies have been prosecuted, but individuals have not been prosecuted as much. And so it was one of the things that was unusual about the Purdue case was the conviction of individuals. It does beg the question who ultimately is responsible. So I guess that's what this new interpretation by the U.S. state attorney was. It was to also put some individuals accountable. Whether or not the accountability was what it should have been or not is, is, is of course, a, you know, a subjective uh, judgment. It's one perspective. I think it is, it is terribly important to remember that these, that these executives were convicted using a doctrine that, that does not require any showing that they themselves engaged in any misconduct or had any intent to engage in any misconduct. And that in and of itself is shocking. I mean, historically, since these Supreme Court cases issued, and the most recent one was 19, the mid-1970s, overall, the Food and Drug Administration, who until the last four or five years really was a leader in enforcing these laws, took a fairly conservative role and a conservative stance toward using this doctrine to pursue individuals. And really, as a matter of its exercise of its discretion, focused on pursuing individuals only when they could show that the individual had received a prior warning or other type of notice of misconduct and then failed to act. And that seems fundamentally fair. If you are on notice that, you know, your company is committing a violation, a specific violation, and you don't move to fix it, that's one thing. I think it's entirely different and and something that has to be uh, used very cautiously, if at all to use the criminal law to punish individuals for the conduct of someone else when they neither knew about it nor had any intent that that conduct be engaged in. Okay, we return to our final portion with our interview with Kirsten Meyer, our attorney with the Ropes and Gray lawyer group up there in in Boston, Massachusetts. Following the completion of our uh, interview there, we're going to take a short break and come back with some follow-up commentary to kind of fill in the uh, you know, fill in the gaps of information regarding the, the, the actual activities that led to, to the criminal prosecution. So this is the returning back to the interview now. The final thing I just wanted to mention was when, when it's explained that way, it seems like that people are being prosecuted without not knowing anything about something, yet they did agree to a plea bargain. And they did agree in the plea bargain that they would pay whatever, the $34 million in personal fines, executives there are. So there must have been some liability and give and take where you're the defense attorney shared with his clients that this is a deal that seems to be fair in some former sense. So, I mean, it, usually in a plea bargain, can you make that assumption that somehow both sides are agreeing that this is a fair uh, reconciliation of the issues that are in front of them? I try not to assume too much from a plea bargain. <laughs> right, but I, right. what I will say, just for taking a step back, and again, I, you know, it's hard to com- comment specifically about individual cases, but there are, under the misdemeanor provision of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, the misbranding provision, the one used in off-label and misbranding cases, if you're convicted, you can face not only fines, but up to a year in jail. 
for each each count. And what a count is is, you know, every time a drug is sold or distributed in interstate commerce, if that was a misbranded or the result of off-label marketing, that could potentially be charged as its own count. So if you're a company that made 10 sales as a result of off-label marketing, you know, potentially you could be on the hook for 10 different counts of, mm-hmm. of off-label marketing uh, violations. So if you're an individual and the government has come to you and said, I know you didn't do anything wrong yourself personally, and I know you didn't know that somebody in your company was doing something wrong, but somebody did, and here's the evidence, and you were in a position of authority so that based on the reporting lines and the duties that you know, you've agreed you have in the company, you are in a position of responsibility and authority with respect to you know, compliance in this area, you know, so we can convict you of the misdemeanor. Here's your choice. You can plead and pay a fine, even a big one, to the misdemeanor, or we can go to trial, and we think we'll convict you because all we have to show is that you were in a position of responsibility and authority here. Um, we don't have to show that you did anything wrong or intended to do anything wrong. And if we convict you, you may go to jail. It gives you an incentive to accept a plea bargain mm-hmm. in return for the certainty that you won't go to jail. That is you know, part of what is, again, in my mind, a reason for a very conservative use of this doctrine that the Supreme Court has uh, laid out. Right. And just a final point here of clarification. The law itself then does not preclude you from going after the executives as well as the actual perpetrators that were doing the alleged mismarketing or whatever. It, in other words, if you went and you looked at the agreed statement of facts and if the agreed statement of facts indicated that there was severe misrepresentation of the drug's effects or whatever that promoted sales, obviously, and there were people training people in these methods and methodologies, for whatever reasons, those people, they could have been prosecuted if that was the case. Is that, is that correct? In other words, do you ha- can you only go after the the highest people, or, or can you, does the law allow you to go after as many individuals throughout that chain? So you have at one end people that are CEOs that are responsible, very removed from the acts, and may or, or may not have known for the purposes of our discussion, let's say they did not know anything about what was going on, but because of their position and according to this law interpretation that they pled out on, they accepted this plea bargain, but they're actually accepting and taking the penalties for behavior that occurred by other individuals. And the question for me would be, was it an option to also go over the individual misconduct if there was some? Absolutely. The law defines what a criminal violation is. And if there's someone who's committed the violation, the prosecutor has the option of pursuing them criminally. There, again, are a number of reasons a prosecutor may or may not do that. And it is in the discretion of the prosecutor to make that decision. Okay, well, listen, I want to thank you so much. I want to remind our listeners that we've been visiting so with Kirsten Myers, and she is with Ropes and Gray in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. She wrote a real interesting article that was published June 22, 2007 in Prescription Compliance Report regarding a prosecution of uh, Purdue executives and alluding to a new Department of Justice focus on corporate executives in off-label marketing arena. Thank you so much for visiting with us. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. Okay, well, that concludes the tape phone interview that we had in February, February 29th, 2008, with Kirsten Meyer regarding the misdemeanor and felony laws in which the prosecution of Purdue and its three top executives was pursued. There's a lot to the story here that we want to go ahead and continue to give you some information on. You can also contact me at pedrogatos.org for a lot more information. We did a show just about two and a half months ago that detailed a lot of the different dimensions of the actual circumstances that resulted in the prosecution. Uh, One of the things that we just want to be clear on is that 
Generally speaking, there's corporate law, and many people would argue that corporations almost inherently have some safety nets that regular old individuals don't have. Of course, you know, if, if you are uh, owning a corporation and it goes bankrupt, they can't come after your personal finances. They can only go after the assets within the corporation, but it goes farther than that. With respect to the statute in which this corporation and the executives were prosecuted under, this is under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, as, as Kirsten had in indicated, but they define labeling. And before we can understand misbranding, we really first must understand the legal meaning of labeling, and it includes all labels and other written, printed, or graphic matter accompanying a drug. That would include brochures, booklets, mailing pieces, detailing pieces, bulletins, letters, if there were motion picture films, if there were sound recordings or videos or exhibits or literature, and similar pieces of printed audio or visual matter descriptive of a drug which are or which was uh, disseminated by or on behalf of the drug's manufacturer, packer, or distributor. Okay. In this case, there were thousands, uh, over 10,000 pamphlets that were sent, or, or I should say they were actually copies of a study with a marketing tip on how to interpret it that allowed the Purdue company to actually train its sales force, which was in the hundreds and hundreds, I think about three to 600, and it grew heavily during this time, on how to actually market, to market this drug in a way that misled people to its real pharmacological and addictive profile, so to speak. When you talk about misbranding, if the labeling is false or misleading in any particular, in other words, if any of this information that's being sent out in the form of any material manner as described by the labeling deal that we just went through, if its labeling is false or misleading in any particular, then it can be misbranding. It's a violation not to just make statements that are false, but also by knowingly failing to reveal facts material to understanding the potential consequences of using the drug according to its prescribed use. So even by withholding information that you know is important for people to make informed notions, then you can also have this uh, situation of misbranding. Now, the felony part of this deal, evidently, is if you have, if this occurs and you did it intentionally and you had knowledge, that is the felony part. And that's a pretty tough hurdle to prove, I would guess, as a prosecuting attorney. With the different ways in which things work these days, many times people can be very insulated and can plausibly deny knowledge of issues and that type of thing. But what's interesting about this law is that it allows the public welfare to be protected when the public welfare is put at risk by such activities of misbranding, whether or not you can actually prove up that they knew or it was intentional or this type of thing. So anyhow, that was something worth mentioning. It's evident that there were not put into place good controls. Remember the prosecutorial checkoff list that Kirsten had, had mentioned, the prosecution memo checkoff list. One of the things, did the company have in place something to prevent this misconduct? And the nature and the seriousness of the offense was another one. The pervasiveness of wrongdoing within the corporation was another one. And it's really important to point out that there was huge pervasiveness of wrongdoing. There was huge pervasiveness in the form of they knew, they had their own studies, that, and this was proved up in the agreed statements. So I'm speaking from a fact-based deal that even the defendants agreed to by signing the agreed statement of facts, that they knew about their own study that showed that some 68% of oxycodone could be liberated from this pill, this oxycotton. And again, oxycotton is a time-release pill, 12 hours in duration. 68% of it 
of the psychoactive ingredient oxycodone could be released by simply putting it into water, stirring it and dissolving it, and then just drawing it up through a mechanism to uh, filter out the non-oxycodone elements. So they knew that, yet they were making claims that it's less potentially abusable compared to the drugs that they were competing with, which were the immediate release. The immediate release analgesics, you've heard of probably Percodan or Percocet. They also are oxycodone based pain relievers. They have some five to seven milligrams of oxycodone and they're mixed though with one is mixed with aspirin and the other with Tylenol, acetaminophen, which makes it less abusable because it can't be crushed up and you can't shoot up stuff like that as well or break it down into, into a way to uh, you know encephalate or snort it or, or use it to, to uh, create this huge bang that the oxycotton can. So what is laid out factually, again, in the agreed statement of facts and acknowledged by the three defendants, is that there was a corporate culture of promoting deceit. The deceit included supervisors, training parts, and at times the whole sales staff at Purdue with information that was scientifically unsound and led to increased sales due to false beliefs it generated among physicians and other targeted medical personnel. The first year that Oxycontin was approved, its sales started off in 1996 at some $44.8 million, prescriptions of some 317000 As you go closer towards the present day, 1997, it jumped up to $125 million, from 44 to $125,000,000, then to $286 million in 98, jumped to $555 million in 1999, and in 2000, it jumped to $981 million and jumped to $1.3 billion in 2001. Now, it's important, the 1996 to 2001 period was the period in which the corporation was prosecuted for, and it was because John Brownlee, the U.S. attorney, felt that this was the time in which they were doing the misbranding. They were actively marketing this drug falsely and misleadingly. They were creating their own graphs. It's an incredible story, their own graphs that falsely represented the peaks and trials of, of this drug. In other words, when you look at a, a very powerful psychoactive drug like this, and these are pain medications, there is an amount of the drug that, that will take you out of pain, and that will be into the therapeutic level. And if you take too much of it, you'll go out of the therapeutic level, and you'll go into a euphoria level. And that's really what promotes or incites the greatest tendency towards uh, addiction. And, and of course, addicts know all about this. But anyhow, they created graphs to make it look like their drugs stay almost completely within the therapeutic realm, never going up into the euphoric realm. And this is just a falsification. The falsification actually occurred as they compared it to the immediate release. And the FDA even asked them to, to change and to include both data together. And they ended up having to you know, do this and other things. But anyhow, they got prosecuted during that period, but really... Once that false advertising stopped, guess what? Their sales continued to go up. Just like if Coca-Cola was to stop advertising today, do you think their, their sales would go down tomorrow? No, they would be sustained for a period of time. And in this case, it was for another couple of years. In fact, their most profitable period of time occurred after the end of the prosecution period. In 2001 was the end, June of 2001. During the next two years were their actual highest income and profit returns. And they were not included in this deal. In fact, they got immunity through 2007 for any activities connected to this behavior. So when you really look at the amounts of money that they made on this product, regardless of having to pay out $634 million, what you begin to see is what people that are often looked at as being very cynical have kind of been saying that this kind of 634 million is is uh, uh, is chump change.
So we just have a few more minutes. I just want to share with you that the period of prosecution, as we mentioned, was from 96 to 2001. But what I found really interesting was, you know, we mentioned the financial benefits accrued to the corporation and its top three executives as a result of the criminal behavior that, that they were prosecuted for, where its highest rates in the time that followed the period, and during which time they became immune from prosecution, as we mentioned. I also wanted to just share with you that it was before and during this period that the, the corporation was cited by the FDA for law violations. So even they were prosecuted through 2001, but when you go back and you look at some of the violations that occurred even during that period, one was during that period, these are FDA letters of calling them out for illegal behavior. And believe me, in one year, I think it was 2003 when they sent out this letter, they got two violations, and during the first whole quarter of that year, or half of that year, only eight violations went out to all companies. And this was from the GAO account of following this prosecution, or not following the prosecution, but following these, the events that led to the prosecution, an article that they published in 2003. Quote, Purdue has been cited multiple times by FDA for using advertisements in professional medical journals that violated the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. In May 2000, the FDA issued an untitled letter to Purdue regarding a professional medical journal advertisement for OxyContin noted that, among other problems, the advertisement implied that OxyContin had, had been studied for all types of arthritis pain when it had been studied only in patients with moderate to severe osteoarthritis pain. The advertisement suggested OxyContin could be used as an initial therapy for the treatment of osteoarthritis pain without substantial evidence to support this claim, and the advertisement promoted OxyContin in a selected class of patients, the elderly, without presenting risk information applicable to that class of patients. Moreover, and the last thing I just want to get to since we need to get out of here, in a letter, January 17, 2003, the FDA sent Purdue a warning letter concerned about uh, the clearly illegal promotion of OxyContin during late 2002. Uh, there were two articles. There was one in October 2, 2002 in Journal of American Medical Association issue, and another, the November ad, in the same publication, was on November 13, 2002. So these activities and this false marketing and all this stuff goes on after the actual end of the prosecution period that, that Brownlee had set. Anyhow, we'll return to this at another time. We'll see you next week. Okay, well, this is not next week. This is just over 12 and a half years later, October 28, 2020. And as we said earlier, the same corporation, Purdue Pharma, is still in trouble, and they're in new trouble. In fact, they no longer exist, essentially. Much of the following information is sourced from two articles and, and Wikipedia. One article is, as Purdue Pharma settles criminal opioid crisis claims, experts question if it is enough. It's by Courtney Hessler from the Herald-Dispatch, October 25, 2020. That's from the Charleston Gazette-Mail in West Virginia. The other article is, We Need Prison Time, Produce Belated Guilty Plea Gets Skeptical Reaction by Chris McGreal of The Guardian, published October 22, 2020. And then lastly, some of the information comes from Wikipedia and is sourced with great detail on Wikipedia. If you Google Wikipedia Oxycontin. Purdue filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy on September 15, 2019 in New York City. It was a result of its unethical and deadly behavior that resulted in numerous lawsuits. The most recent was earlier this month on October 21st, 2020, a settlement was reached for $8.3 billion, and they admitted, 
quote, knowingly and intentionally conspired and agreed with others to, to aid and abet doctors dispensing medication without a legitimate medical purpose, with members of the Sackler family additionally having to pay $225 million and the company will dissolve. Those were the conditions of the recent settlement. But this lawsuit was preceded by others, including the one in 2007 that we detailed in this show, in which they had pleaded guilty to charges of illegally marketing Oxycontin and paid a $600 million fine. In addition to the $600 million fine, the company's president, Michael Friedman, his top lawyer, Howard R. Udell, and former chief medical uh, officer Paul D. Goldenheim pleaded guilty as individuals to misbranding charges, a criminal violation, and agreed to pay a total of $34.5 million in fines. But the company's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, during that case, the former New York mayor who went on to represent Trump, according to the Guardian article, pulled political strings to keep its executives out of prison. He was able to avoid a bar on Purdue doing business with federal government, which would have killed a large part of the multi-billion dollar market for that drug. In other words, the felony charge went to a corporation, while the misdemeanor misbranding charge, with no jail time, went to the three top executives. Not even a person, Purdue Frederick. And if you have a felony charge conviction, which they got, on your corporation, it cannot do business with the federal government. Of course, Medicare and the business of pain medications and all prescription drugs is a huge business. So they set up a shell corporation, is my understanding, in order to insulate them from not being able to do business with the government. That's what they're alluding to here in Rudy Giuliani's help as a lawyer. Regardless, last year, an advisor to the company found that Purdue Frederick paid out more than $10 billion to the Sacklers in the years after the 2007 criminal conviction as Oxycontin sales continued to increase even after that lawsuit. An additional lawsuit in 2004, West Virginia Attorney General sued Purdue for reimbursement of excessive prescription costs paid by the state, saying that patients were taking more of the drug than they had been prescribed because the effects were wearing off hours before the 12-hour schedule as this is a time-release drug, by the way, Oxycontin. The state charged Purdue with deceptive marketing. The case never went to trial. Purdue agreed to settle by paying the state $10 million for programs to discourage drug abuse and all the evidence remaining under seal and confidential. So much for transparency. So despite all of these other lawsuits that they were convicted of, they end up paying $8 billion in fines and damages in this lawsuit, admitting to bribing doctors to unnecessarily prescribing Oxycontin and to lying to the Drug Enforcement Administration about controls on sales of the painkiller. It also paid illegal kickbacks to health records companies that promoted opioid prescribing to physicians. This is an epidemic that has claimed more than 500,000 lives over the past 20 years, according to The Guardian. The complaint, the statement of facts per se, said until the 1990s, opioids were rarely prescribed for chronic pain conditions because they were believed to be too addictive. The overproduction and overprescription of opioids was directly sparked by Purdue's misinformation campaign around the effects of the drug more than two decades ago, referring to the misbranding convictions. The settlement absolves Purdue owners, members of the Sackler family, from individual civil liability, although they will pay the $225 million out of pocket, as we mentioned, as part of the settlement. The company still faces hundreds of civil claims. Most condemning, in my eyes, is that in the complaint, Scott Hadland, a pediatrician and researcher at the Graken Center for Addiction Medicine, 
said studies showed areas hit the hardest by the opioid crisis were the same areas targeted by that Purdue marketing. Introduced in 1995, OxyContin, with 10 or 20 times the narcotic content of many regular painkillers, accounted for a much larger proportion of the total drug on the market, reflected in sales of up to $2 billion a year, more than any other opioid. The company that became Purdue Pharma was founded in 1892 by medical doctor John Purdue Gray and George Frederick Bingham in Manhattan as the Purdue Frederick Company. In 1952, the company was sold to two other medical doctors, brothers Raymond and Mortimer Sackler, hence the Sackler family that's been alluded to earlier in our broadcast. Purdue Farmer makes pain medications such as hydromorphone, oxycodone, fentanyl, codeine, and hydrocodone, also known as Vicodin. It is widely known for the production of drugs such as MS cotton, oxycotton, and Rizolt. The names may not be familiar, but the concept to remember is that in 1972, cotton which was a, a controlled drug release system, was developed. In other words, a controlled release of this medication. In 1984, its extended release formulation of morphine, MS cotton, was released. In 1996, its extended release form of oxycodone, oxycotton, was released. So oxycotton was introduced into the market in 1995. It was produced breakthrough palliative for chronic pain under a marketing strategy that Arthur Sackler had pioneered Decades earlier, the company aggressively pressed doctors to prescribe the drug, wooing them with free trips to pain management seminars and paid speaking engagements. Sales soared. In 2012, New England Journal of Medicine published a study that found that 76% of those seeking help for heroin addiction began by abusing pharmaceutical narcotics, primarily OxyContin, and drew a direct line between produced marketing of OxyContin and the subsequent heroin epidemic in the United States. In 2003, the DEA found that Purdue's aggressive methods had, had very much exasperated OxyContin's widespread abuse in 2003. The DEA found that Purdue's aggressive methods had very much exasperated OxyContin's widespread abuse. At the end of the day, nobody is going to jail, yet 500,000 people have died. This is yet another unfair consequence of a predatory system of profit over people. When we hear, save the soul of America, these foundational forms of oppression must be eliminated first before such a dream can be realized. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. See you next week. Please stay tuned for our overnight broadcasting, which comes up next. You'll have to switch on over to our internet at koop.org. So join Tim for Nobody's Happy Hour. We take you out as we do every night with Land of Naivety.